0: Good afternoon and welcome to Grappling with Security and Compliance-Related Challenges in the Age of COVID, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the moderator. uh, I'll be your moderator today. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO. Regarding audience participation, we're looking forward to it. Send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll get to a little one-question poll later in the program. Nice way to view your screen. Click in the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Anahi Santiago, CISO with Christiana Care, Glenn Stanton, VP, CISO, and interim CTO at Yale New Haven Health, and Nick Culbertson, co-founder and CTO at Pro Tennis. All right, important topic and lots of good things to talk about today. So let's jump right in. Anahi, let's start with you. Can we get an overview of your organization and your role?
1: Uh, yes,
2: so I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Christiana Care. Christiana Care is the largest health system in the state of Delaware, uh, also serving the three neighboring states. Uh, we are an integrated delivery system, and actually the only Level One Trauma Center between Philadelphia and Baltimore. So our um, our scope and criticality in serving the community that we serve is is pretty significant.
0: All right.
1: Very good. Thank you. Glenn? Glenn Stanton. I am the Chief Information Security Officer for Yale New Haven Health System. Um, I have been in the security role for about nine years at uh, Yale New Haven Health System, uh, previously working for um, AT&T, British Telecom, and and uh, very large uh, multinational organizations. Um, Yale is uh it obviously, it uh, is connected to the Yale University and the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, we are the largest employer in Connecticut, and uh, and our, our geographic spread um, covers top end of New York, um, sort of uh, into the Greenwich area, uh, and now up to up through Rhode Island. Um, so as I say, I've been, I've been with Yale for about nine years now. Um, I'm also the interim CTO, Chief Technology Officer, and have been for the past year, um, trying to sort of steer that ship through covid um, responsible for deploying things like telemedicine remote working um, capacity on uh, on my chart systems and all the rest and uh, and we do use protonus internally
0: very good thank you nick all right first question main question here um glenn we're going to start with you let's start by defining the issue uh, who is allowed to access a patient's EMR and under what circumstances we have to define it if we can decide when it's been breached? So what are, they, what are people allowed to do?
1: It's a big question. Um, so we always start off with uh, treatment payment and operations. Um, so TPO is the is the phrase that a lot of people will hear. Um, you are allowed to access a medical rec- record for um, treating the patients. Um, obtaining some kind of payment from the patients, and then operations is, is usually a little bit more of that sort of grey area, but covers things like the 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 IT need to back up systems, uh, troubleshoot things like that. Um, it's perhaps easier to sort of define what you're not allowed to access Mm -hmm. patient um, records for. Um, So you are not allowed to use the EMR for your personal uh, phone directory. If you want to look up an, an employee's a fellow employee's birth date, no, Um, you're not allowed to look at your spouses without their specific permission. Um, You know, it's, anything outside of that, very rigid, unless you have a treatment relationship with that patient and you are engaged in that specific encounter, then the answer is no. It, unless you are involved in obtaining pay, payments from that patient, the answer is no. And then operations, that's where you should probably be asking if, if you fall through that, it's not treatment, it's not payment, is it operations? That's when you probably do want to start asking people if uh, if you're allowed to do what you're doing.
0: All right, very good, Nick. Anything you want to add to that?
3: Uh, yes, I'd love to add that, Anthony. Thank you. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about security and privacy in healthcare is that HIPAA is a rule of exclusion. It says how you should access medical record information, as Glenn just outlined. It doesn't say who. Uh, and so while other industries, we have role-based access controls that determines what who uh, should be accessing what data. In healthcare, you have this challenge of really trying to understand, should this person be accessing this data? And the only way you can do that is by by looking to see, were they performing treatment and payment operations like, like Glenn described? And so uh, at Pretennis, we we built uh, an artificial intelligence that looks at every access to every medical record every day and ask the question, is this person accessing it for the right reasons? Are they doing it for treatment and paper operations? And if not, should we send this to a human subject matter expert to review and analyze and really understand the context around that? Uh, and so unlike other industries where you can set up a more robust role-based access controls or security privileges, in healthcare, you really unfortunately do need to audit every access uh, to determine whether or not there's an appropriate uh, level of, of control. So it's, it puts a lot of onus on um, privacy and security individuals to make sure that they have that kind of uh, control in place.
0: Anahi?
2: Well, as you asked the question, I, I thought to myself, who isn't allowed to access the EMR? Because um, one of the things we haven't talked about it, you know, are it, 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 all the third parties that also require access to an EMR, whether it's non-employed physicians and their support staff who may have privileges at the you know, at at the health systems as well as auditors that need access for for HEDIS reviews, quality quality reviews. It's you know, it's the third parties that we that we employ to do um, analytics for us or to do peer reviews of uh, physician documentation, and so the ecosystem of individuals that. Need access to our EMR for, for that for those operation health related operations is growing more and more and so um, to Nick's point the, the need to do that continuous auditing and monitoring uh, becomes critical and and the need to have automation and 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 artificial intelligence is becoming more and more important because. The privacy individuals and organizations, uh, you know, the privacy programs and the security programs aren't staffed with dozens of people that are just looking at those events. Um, and so, you know, having machine learning and the ability for automation to augment, you know, the human eye is becoming increasingly more important.
0: All right, very good. All right, next question. Um, Anahi, let's stick with you on this how do you well this is interesting so how do you prevent and detect compliance related intrusions everything i've hearing so far is this is all going to be done after the fact so i wonder if this question even makes sense is there it, like a real time detection and and like the wall goes up boom you you can't get in or is this all after the fact auditing and that's the best we can do
2: so so you know it I, I think you can prevent. I think education in privacy and security is a is a really important component of a program. So making sure that individuals understand uh, that that we are auditing access to information, and that you know, and that they have um, a duty to ensure that they are only accessing. Information for treatment payment or healthcare related operations, and that there are guardrails in terms of what can be done for research and for fundraising and for things that sort of fall outside of the traditional TBO. Um, <clears throat> and we, we've talked about the EMR, but the reality of it is that healthcare data within our organizations resides everywhere, not just in the EMR. So it's in file shares, it's in email. It's in, um, you know, SharePoint sites, team sites. And so uh, training people to make sure that they know and understand where that data resides and where they should or should not be storing information is also as important. And then, you know, also employing other mechanisms, such as DOP, data loss prevention, or cloud access security brokers to make sure that we're containing where the data is moving within our organization and outside of our organization are also technologies besides just auditing within EMRs that need to be employed in order to prevent and detect where, um, where where there may be unauthorized access. So it really does take a village and there are preventative measures that organizations can take in addition to the reactive measures around the proactive and and, and reactive auditing that takes place within organizations.
3: Very good. So, I, I think Anais is exactly right, but I, I'd um, uh, really just stress the point that there's no silver bullet to protecting patient privacy. You really have to have a layered approach. And I, I like what Anai said about the education as part of that, and I think we have a lot to learn um around privacy and security uh, from the phishing uh uh, approach and and when it comes to phishing education we know that if we do annual phishing training um it's not as effective as doing continual training throughout the year and identifying when someone does click on a a simulated phishing attack getting that personalized on-the-spot training right there is so much more effective and when it comes to uh hipaa violations or security breaches Someone is doing something that's outside of their role and responsibility, and you can detect early warning signs of them going down the wrong direction. Being able to provide that on the spot, personalized education is, is really effective in terms of deterring them from repeating the offense uh, or or um, um, going down a path that they shouldn't.
0: Glenn,
1: yeah. So um, I'm going to take a slightly different direction because I think Anahi and Nick have covered it phenomenally well. Um, one of the things that I like to try and do is um, put things into a context that people can, can easily understand. Um, and when we talk about cybersecurity and security of, of our systems, at times it tends to get um, technical and complex and you get the glazed look. Um, so one of the ways that I like to try and explain this is in a building analogy. Um, something physical that people can can sort of look at and understand and you've got your firewalls your perimeter fence around around the building and they're locked and you've got that layer then you've got the doors you lock the doors you alarm the doors within that you've got your motion sensors within that you've got your cameras somewhere in that building you've got a safe which is locked which is the key information and and in this case the EMR is the safe right it's the it's where all of that data um, that sensitive data would would, would uh, reside and and helping people understand that and and asking them that question so you know at, at home nowadays you've you've got you lock your doors do you have a nest do you have a camera do you have an alarm yes okay so so in in your physical world you're already thinking about security in layers and and having those preventative controls like locks and detective or reactive controls like cameras or alarms. And it's the same in our world. And, and helping people sort of understand that you've got those layers um, helps people sort of go through that path of, okay, so now I understand the layers. And the auditing is just one of those detective layers. Um, it's a detective control. Can you prevent it? Well, yes. All of those other layers are there to prevent the firewalls, the multi-factor authentication, uh, coming down to that sort of EMR, uh, applying break the glass, for example, and those types of controls that may be around being a bit more proactive. So if you've got, uh, if you've got celebrities that you know are coming in or vips that you know are coming in maybe you are proactive and just adding that break the glass so you're preventing and making people stop and think um, and auditing on that such as if they bump the glass you can kind of then get an appreciation of okay well we stopped something we were we were preventative um but absolutely what what uh, anahi and nick had said education and making sure that they know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, that they are being audited um, and, and making sure that that's a visible thing. Um, somebody once told me that uh, that when, when you go through those metal detectors at, uh, at a concert, um, there is a reason that they always put trash cans um, 10 feet in front of those metal detectors. The metal detectors are are a visual deterrent. And if you always go and look at the event afterwards, you'll find pocket knives and all sorts in the trash cans because mm-hmm. people have seen the metal detector mm-hmm. and dumped, yeah. <laughs> dumped what's in their pockets that they know is not appropriate. Um, so making sure you have the, those deterrents in place is key.
0: Well, Glenn, you know, so using your moat and your analogy of the building and, and all this stuff, which I think is a great analogy, um, one of the hardest scenarios, probably to deal with, is something that we're we're talking about here, which is the employee. So a lot of your defenses are for someone outside the organization. We're talking about an employee. They've already they've already passed all that stuff because they have credentials and they can log in and all that. And if we say it's not a celebrity, if we say it's let's say it's a nurse who's curious if her nurse friend has COVID, uh, and, and and so. How do you detect something like that? Because that's, you know, that's got to be audited, right? You're not going to catch that before the fact. You're not going to
1: detect that before the fact. And and you're not going to detect everything before the fact. Um, And you also probably don't want to go too far down that path. Um, In in healthcare, one of the things that makes healthcare very different about um, any of the other sort of places that I've worked is that, the patient care is is always going to be the priority so based upon that we would have to be very very careful about doing those preventive controls right so um, Nick, Nick uh, you know again I I'll, I will say I am a proteinus uh, we are a Protonus user our Protonus customer um, I, I wasn't or, or uh, that that came out after I was asked to, to be on this panel so that's <laughs> a coincidence um, Nick's got some very smart coders and certainly you know, if we asked Protonus could you put in more of those preventative controls where it sort of says okay uh, you have a um, an employee who doesn't work in the emergency departments this visit is somebody coming into the into the emergency departments can you pop something up which says, no, they're, they're not not allowed to do that. We could work with, with Epic and, uh, and Proteinus on that type of thing or to give a real-time alert. Um, but would we want to, right? Um, that's one of those where now you're potentially getting in the way of patient care for an emergency visit. And we would have to be really, really super careful about implementing... Um, levels of preventative controls, which we're going to potentially get in the way of patient care. Um, so that, that I think is why we we do tend to land more on the detection and auditing and after the fact rather than trying to throw too many barriers in the way of patient care.
0: Nick, your, your thoughts on that, um, it's, it's an argument or a balance that always comes up in discussions of security, uh, securing things without impeding usability. And then you also have to look at the risk of the scenario that you're talking about, right? So if we talk about uh, an outside actor coming in and ransomware, big risk, big effect. Uh, so then you probably want to put up roadblocks and, and, and possibly impede some the speed someone can move at through the record. But if we talk about one employee peeking into another's file, we don't want it to happen. We want to know if it happens, but maybe we don't want the whole world to come crashing down on them if it does. because the effect is not that dramatic. What are your thoughts?
3: So prior to starting for Tennis, I was a greenberry in the military and I did human intelligence. So in the in the intelligence community, uh, you have to go through a lot of hoops to get access to certain information. You have to be on the right types of, of security clearance or, or on the right project to have access to that information because giving up too much information can only do harm. Uh, it's the exact opposite in patient care. And the moment uh, and that example Glenn gave—the moment a doctor can't access patient information in emergency—is the moment you're going to rip out whatever system blocked that, um, that access in the first place. And so there's just no margin of error on on that front. And so you have to use um, technologies to be able to audit all of the all of the information after the fact. I think also it's unique in healthcare that that we really have a benevolent workforce. Uh, you know we have people that really care about patients and want to see them do better. And oftentimes a lot of uh, snooping or inappropriate access that occurs, while it's, it's much higher volume than hacking uh, or some of these really nefarious uh, a- external actors, um, a lot of it is the good intention. and that's why education is so important because people have the right intentions. They maybe just care about maybe their grandmother or grandfather's in the hospital and they want to just help them understand their medical record. But they need to be reminded that there are appropriate ways to access that information, you know, through a system like MyChart or some kind of patient portal, or going through the the hospital staff, not using your employee uh, credentials to access their record for reasons other than treatment or payment operations. So again, that education is is really key uh, in this whole uh, the, uh, this whole layered approach.
0: Anahi, anything you want to add here?
2: I so I do believe that most of the inappropriate access that takes place in healthcare is out of benevolence and a, a, a need to help either a, a fellow employee or a family member. And I'm optimistic that with the new interoperability laws that have since passed, um, and, and the push for greater access for patients to Um, have in terms of their own care information that some of that will will ease and that the the snoopingness will become more the prevalent but even that's not always malicious it might be out of curiosity and that the the events that truly are out of malicious intent whether it's gossip or or just true snoop will, um, will become the the more prevalent issues but But the the preventative pieces of it are are just not possible in in terms of um, preventing potential patient safety issues or creating potential safety issues. So I I I remember um, starting in in healthcare and cybersecurity 16 years ago, coming from systems and technology and thinking to myself, what did I get myself into? (laughs) Everything's wide open, every every computer um, is accessible by employees, patients, visitors, like how on earth can we implement cybersecurity and privacy in healthcare? But we've been able to figure it out and we've been able to find a balance. And, and I heard a term a few months ago that information security professionals um, need to stop being um, the, the agent of NO
0: mm-hmm. and the
2: agents of KNOW. Um, and I thought that that was a really great analogy, and and, and so it's especially in healthcare, we need to promote patient safety by by allowing that access and then putting guardrails in place to really flush out what what we believe is nefarious or malicious activity.
1: Yeah. And let me let okay. me just jump in there because I, I I couldn't agree more with what was said there about the vast majority of incidents we deal with are. are are well intentioned, good, good natured, and and I think for us that that tends to be a little heartbreaking when when, when we have to get involved in some of these sanctions and some of these uh, um, compliance issues. And you know that that person did not intend to be malicious. Um, that that's that's probably one of the hard parts of the job. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I, I have had some very nice people, some very well intentioned people you know, in tears in front of me. And that's always a little hard.
0: Glenn, isn't that, I would imagine that things are going to escalate at second and third offenses. Uh, and it's not going to be the first one that causes the the biggest problem. I mean, what do you think, do you see repeat offenders that, you know, you go, Hey, what, why can't you get this? Why, why why do you keep doing this?
1: I, I will say repeat offenders. Um, when it comes to inappropriate access and CMR is in exceedingly rare. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, either, it, you know, it, either the sanctions are such that they are terminated when, when they do something wrong um, and they don't get a second opportunity or, or, the message is really super clear that they're being watched. Uh, that's completely opposite with fishing. I got to tell you, yeah. um, <laughs> we we get a lot of frequent flyers on the fishing, and I see you laughing as well. <laughs> I was thinking the
2: same thing. I, <laughs> I, I was, uh, you know, I, so I saw. Uh, I believe it was a Panaman report last year that that stated that healthcare is the only industry where the um, the the top reason for incident stems from insider threat and when we use the word insider threat we're not just talking about the malicious actors it's the repeat offenders that click on the links and open the attachments and uh, and so I, I think in our industry because of the need to open up the access to to the level that we need to in order to affect patient care um the human error element becomes the prevalent reason for for incidents and and that's why, you know, I, 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 am, I, I beat the drum around education, 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 because if, if, if we don't get that right, we don't have a shot at, at getting security and privacy
3: right. So, I, and I actually have data um, on this. When we look at, uh, when we detect an offender for the first time, like when we first install our solution, you look back at that person's uh, audit log over the past several years, and you see that it's not the first time they've done it. They've just gone undetected up until that point. And, and and we did a study to figure out what is the likelihood of someone repeating the offense if they've been detected, if they've been reprimanded, if they've been educated. And it's a 2% uh, of all people who are detected once will repeat it. It's, it's not that not that significant. So if you're catching it, you're curtailing. If you don't catch them, if they go undetected, you have a seventy percent chance uh, within the next six months to repeat the violation or doing something worse. So you're talking about going from seventy percent down to two percent just by that that KNOW that uh, Anahi was talking about.
0: Very good, very good. All right, let's see where we gonna want to go. Um... Let's talk a little bit more about this. It sounds like we're really focused on education, um, the identification through the auditing procedure, through the AI tools like like Nick offers. Um, what's the process, Anahi? What's the process uh once you find a, an infraction, so to speak? Um, you know, and, and does that bubble up to you for, for everything, or is that taken care of at a at a different level in the security organization? And is that then communicated to HR? How does that work or how should it work?
2: So that's a great question. Uh, I, I, in, in my current organization, uh, we have a chief privacy officer and a privacy office that handles the inappropriate access to EMRs. So it really depends on what that infraction is. If it's um, you know, clicking on a phishing link that that would move up through us and the sanctions process would be very different than if it was you know, a, a true privacy violation, but the inappropriate access would work its way up through the privacy office. Um, prior to my role at Christiana, I was both the information security and privacy officer for Einstein Healthcare Network
1: in Philadelphia. And I
2: held that role for 10 and a half years. So there, because I had that, that, that dual responsibility, it would come up through me. Um, and it and it would get investigated in terms of um, figuring out what, what the you know what the reasoning was for that for that particular axis. Philadelphia, um, so Einstein is located in a pretty tough area of Philadelphia, and so we got a lot of shootings and and things that would make their way into the news. So. Um, when those helicopters, those news helicopters, we hover above the emergency room, which I had clear view from my office, I knew that my day was going to get long.
0: <laughs>
2: um, and so, it, it you know, we have mechanisms in place for for doing that that um, reactive auditing to determine who was accessing what. And so, the sanctions process really is dependent on, or, or was dependent on, on the type of infraction, the, the the reasoning, and the egregiousness of that. And at Christiana, it's much the same. I'm not as involved in terms of going through um, the, the investigation. That's all done through the privacy office, but wherever we can, from an information security perspective, support privacy, we certainly do. And it is a true partnership in terms of all the work that we do to make sure that we're advancing um, any privacy and security uh, work that can affect these kinds of
0: issues. So, Glenn, it sounds it sounds like you could have a situation where it, it's if the two functions are combined, as they were in Anahi's previous job, she also somewhat adjudicated the situation uh, and decided on appropriate uh, resolution. Um, but if those are separated, then it sounds like IT would inform privacy of the infraction and then it would be passed off and handled over there uh what what goes on at your organization
1: it, it's it's more of the latter so um the the way that we specifically work is that um we are responsible for the security of the EMR um so that is provisioning access auditing the access um we in ITR and security are responsible for that application the same way that we are any other application um once we get an alert and, and it's, there's two ways to sort of look at this actually. So, um, we handle the proactive auditing side. So when, when the Protonus system generates an alert, so, um, what Nick had said there, which, which we find is a real benefit, um, is that sort of AI based platform. Now, Protonus was really the, the first biggest um, implementation of an AI-based platform at Yale. I mean, we, we've got others, we've used others since, we're, we're working on it like everybody else is, um, but applying it that, that, that AI ability, that learning ability to patient privacy auditing it is one of the things that, that attracted us to the solution. Um, that's that has reduced our, our workload because, as that AI has learned uh, what what we consider good and bad, then it starts to send us better alerts. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certain criteria that 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 you can ask it to look at, so it can generate x number of VIP type alerts, x number of um, of of co-worker alerts. So so you can tell it what kind of things you might be interested in. Those alerts get to my team. My team then does the initial triage. Uh, We will then contact the manager of that department and say, this is what's happened. Um, Please meet with your employee and understand what the scenario was. We will then get that back, look at that response see if that matches up with the actual action and the audit logs, and also consult with other clinicians. Was that that normal? Was that about right? Because we don't know all of the workflows. um, So sometimes we have to call in the experts on those workflows. If it starts to look suspicious and that something's not quite right, we can't just dismiss it. Um, So certain things that we can dismiss, for example, Uh, somebody who has never seen a patient in this department all of a sudden is looking at patients in that department and then we look through it and okay they've recently transferred Mm -hmm. immediately dismissed not a problem Um, those that can't be then we will engage our compliance departments our compliance and privacy departments um, who are phenomenal if any of them out there and i've worked some one with some wonderful privacy officers they are my best friends mm-hmm. um they will then pick that work up with hr and and at that point then it kind of we have a sanctions policy which is, as now he was saying um uh, based upon certain criteria um you you would be classed within that sanctions policy and and that would then apply as far as what level of sanction is is ultimately going to be applied, and any um, and, and any sort of other uh, other sort of um, parameters around that. So uh, there is a um, there is a grievance procedure behind that as well. So if the uh, if the employee felt that they were being treated harshly or felt that there was uh, some other mitigating circumstances, they can do that. Um, but over the top of this. Um, we do have a privacy and security committee, uh, which consists of myself, the privacy officer, the compliance officer, legal, H.I.M., um, who own a lot of this information. Um, so all of our guiding principles around this are governed by this committee. Uh, and that's basically how we operate. Oh, one more thing. Um, that was the reactive piece. Um for, or, or sorry, the proactive piece, the reactive piece, where say an employee um, notices something that another co-worker is doing, um, those go straight to the privacy team. Um, those are not handled by my team at all. So, um, so that that sort of reactive piece, um, where we already have a complaint, go straight into the privacy function.
0: Nick, uh, what are you seeing among custo- uh, your customers? Are you seeing any Any sort of common best practice uh, across the board? What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I I think that partnership between IT security and privacy um, and and HR operations is really critical. Uh, In fact, I was looking at the participant list on this this webinar and some of those phenomenal privacy officers that Glenn mentioned, I think, are on the call. so uh, big shout out to the, the privacy professionals on that front. I think that uh, the important thing to remember is you can't buy a technology solution, be it pretend this AI or some other solution and call it uh, problem solved. You can't just throw technology and say, okay, well now our patient records are, are protected. Uh, you really need to think about the workflow around the technology solution that you're using and to do that, you have to have very clear policies and procedures in place to, to, to know what you're going to do when an instance happens. If I came to Glenn today and said, you know, there's a someone looking at a VIP's medical record, whether that's happened or not, he knows how to handle that. Like there's a solution, there's a sequence of steps that you take in place with that. And if you don't have that in place before it happens, uh, you kind of have to figure it out as you go, which may require those various stakeholders, um, whether that's HR, clinical staff, uh, and if they're not prepared about all the steps that are required to remediate the solution, it, it can be very difficult to solve it in a timely uh, and, and efficient way. So building out those policies and procedures in advance and, and building a program around the technology is, I think, the best practice when when really trying to solve this problem.
0: All right. Very good. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the costs here. Um, actual and reputational, you know, are we talking fines here, Anahi? Are these the kind of, these snooping things, can they result in fines? And, you know, so what's at stake here?
2: They can absolutely result in fines. There there have been examples where the OCR has um, levied fines for, you know, to organizations because really the one that comes to mind is they fail to remove access to, uh, an individual and that individual for the period of a year continued to access patient information for whatever reasons. And I can't recall the fine, but it was not insignificant for for the organization. Um, I, I do believe that in terms of um, costs, it's important to Nick's point to have a process uh, for for reviewing access to information, for protecting information, you know, the Office of Civil Rights has um, you know uh, really enforced the whole concept of risk assessment, risk management, making sure that there's a process in place that there's education and awareness in place, um, and, and that you know you have a process for system activity reviews, access and provisioning, as well as sanctions. And so I do believe that if organizations can demonstrate that they have robust processes in place and that they're consistently following them, that uh, a particular infraction may not incur um, fines. Uh, I, I think absent all of those controls in place, then you start to get into potential risk of incurring significant fines. Obviously, the reputational aspects of this are just as important. You know, at Christiana Care, we are very committed to our community and to making sure that we are seen as you know, a pillar in the community and 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 an organization that is there to uh, promote healthiness and well being. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, the reputational components are, are extremely important to us. And so we take privacy and security very seriously and take uh, significant steps and investments in making sure that we are putting our best foot forward, um, but also that we're being transparent um, across the organization should there be an issue. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're not, um, wants to just sweep it under the rug, mm-hmm. but really it's, you know if, if a patient's privacy or their security has been affected in some way, um, we, we are open to engaging in dialogue and making sure that we share what has transpired and certainly the steps that we're taking to ensure that we're mitigating this potent, potential risk factors.
0: All right very good I want to have a, I want to have a little fun here so we're going to uh, launch our poll. It's an agree or disagree and the question is, COVID curiosity increased compliance infractions. Do we agree or disagree with that? And I'm thinking of the scenario of who's got COVID. He was sneezing. She was sneezing, you know, last year at the height of all the craziness. So agree or disagree. And uh, we'll take a look (laughs) at that. I want to get to my favorite part here. And the panelists have not been prepared with these questions that they're going to ask each other which uh, I think makes it all the more interesting. So, um, Nick, let's start with you. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists?
3: Uh, I'd, I'd love to build off of the question around COVID curiosity a little bit and just talk about uh, how COVID has impacted IT security and privacy operations for for both Anahi and, and Glenn. And, and really, I guess the the most important aspect of the question is, when do we know it's over? for you guys. Uh, When do things start to go back to uh, normal and and what kind of metrics are you are monitoring to understand that, okay, we've made it through the pandemic and we're back on the other side at this point.
0: Glenn, why don't you jump in
1: first? Sure, when I stopped getting 20 emails on the weekend, um, (laughs) 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 all requiring urgent attention. yeah it's you know it's getting back to normal um which is good i think we're all all sort of starting to see that um the interesting thing about the question is that we we did start to think about COVID curiosity early on and and certainly for the for the very first handful like less than count them on one hand cases of covid we uh we applied break the glass as a as a sort of that educational um preventative um, measure but that was to buy us time more than anything else it bought us time for the education and the education was the covid is just another disease and We need to treat that with respect and compassion and in exactly the same way that that we do any other disease. So if we think back to, you know, many, many years ago about the sort of hysteria, about sort of um, HIV patients and immediately treating them differently, um, we very, very quickly wanted to get back to our core values as a health system, which is treating people with respect and treating the, the the disease and looking at the person. So um so yeah, we we did notice some COVID curiosity and, and again took some pre- preventative measures for for the very first handful of cases, but then very quickly sent messages to the organization around, hey, look, this is not appropriate for you to be going and looking at to see whether somebody's got COVID. It's just another disease. You are being monitored. You are being looked at. So just don't do it. And, you know, we really didn't have a a big problem with this. Again, education being key and treating people with compassion being the key. Anahi?
2: So um, I'll answer it a little bit differently. Um, I don't know that we'll ever get back to normal. What normal was? Um, and the reason I say that is that what COVID um, did was accelerate the capabilities in the healthcare industry to deliver virtual care and care in the home setting. And, and so when COVID first hit, we were we were pretty prepared in terms of enabling people to work from home and, and deliver the, the virtual care. We had the, the contracts with Zoom for healthcare. We had the um, you know, the, the, the VPNs, the SSL VPNs. I mean, we had the, the infrastructure in place to support it. And so where our team shifted was to um, move very rapidly with the adopt- adoption of technology that would enable um, things like being able to deliver care um, um, within isolation of rooms, Um, enabling technologies so that patients could actually talk to their family members because we didn't allow uh, for visitors. And then the whole push of technology um, to assist patients with being able to self-manage their care Um, and technology um, through the FCC grants to enable patients to um, leverage virtual care in underserved communities through providing cellular service, providing cell phones, mobile devices, um, infusion pumps to the home—I mean, you name it. That the the level of technology that has come through our team for assessment and enablement has significantly increased, and I don't think that that's going to change or slow down. In fact, just today I was asked to put together some projections on staffing needs to um, to be able to support um, digital virtual care. Uh, so that's not going away, and so I think we're just moving into a new normal, and in terms of enabling technology to deliver care in the home setting and through virtual means. And so what that means from a privacy perspective is a couple of things. Is we now have to worry about the Alexas that are listening. And we have to worry about um, my husband that has <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: with the door closed, but probably hearing everything that I'm saying right now. And, and so really thinking through what um, care delivery looks like in a remote setting, as well as we're now pushing technology out into patients' homes and through cloud means. So although our EMR will continue to be the centralized repository for, for clinical data, we have to recognize that it's now in uh, multiple different settings, whether it's a patient's home or in the cloud, in the, in the software as a service cloud environments that are now speaking to the devices that are in a patient's home and then potentially interfacing back to our EMRs. And so I just think that the new normal from an information security and a privacy perspective, it has changed for the better, um, but it's not gonna go back to normal.
0: All right, very good. What we're gonna do now, another one of my favorite parts, is we're gonna have our panelists guess at the poll results. This is always fun. So, Glenn. Let's put you on the spot first. Well, what percentage agree that COVID curiosity increased compliance infractions? Give me a number. 42%. 42%
3: for Glenn. Nick, you're on mute. You're on mute. I'm, I'm going to hope it's 100%. You're
0: going to say 100%. Anahi. I was going to say around 63%. 63%. <laughs> Well the real answer, the correct answer is share, as we share the results. 81%. 81%. What do you think of that? Are we surprised? 81%. No,
2: I, I was I was being optimistic.
0: <laughs> well,
1: Glenn, forty two. I, I was low. Well, forty two <laughs> is the meaning of life.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> We got a little more time, so uh, let's have Glenn ask a question. You have a question for uh, either or both of your co-panelists.
1: Um, sure. Um, Nick, we've we've spoken a lot about patient privacy, um, but obviously, patient privacy auditing is only one element. Um, certainly something that we have been getting into recently is using that sort of same AI functionality and auditing functionality to look at drug diversion. Um, I was wondering whether you'd like to sort of talk a little bit about the the adaption of your technology for, for drug diversion, um, since it is uh, obviously quite, a, quite an important and key issue moving forward.
3: Yeah, thank you, Glenn. I, I think um, it's one thing to go into a record you're not supposed to. It's another thing to go into a record you're supposed to and do something you're not supposed to. Uh, that could be editing a medical record or or committing some kind of fraud or acting on behaviors that are indicative that you're stealing narcotics. And so our vision as a healthcare compliance analytics platform is not just to audit when people are accessing inappropriately medical records, but make sure everything they're doing is part of treatment and payment operations and not fraudulent in any way. And so the same approach of leveraging AI to audit every single transaction, every single event, and then subject matter experts to validate um, uh, the questionable or suspiciousness of those events that the AI detects, I think is a really scalable uh, and efficient approach to managing compliance. But uh, at the end of the day, it comes back to uh, the programs that are built around it and, and really working with partners, um, like the partner we have in Glenn, to, to make sure that we're building a really robust process.
0: All right, very good. Anahi, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, so, so to both of you,
2: um, as you have different perspectives, you know, having been both the information security and privacy professional at, at a particular organization and no longer having that that shared responsibility, uh, I'm wondering, Nick, um, from your customer base, are you seeing that role more often combined or are you seeing it traditionally, um, you know, separate and for Glenn, um, in terms of your relationship with your privacy office, do you, and and based on on the workload in terms of auditing, do you see um, a benefit to having them both together or a benefit in having them separated and sort of, you know, being um, from an account economies of scale um, more efficient that way. So Nick, uh, I'll
3: ask you first. Uh, it's a really interesting question. We have a product called a, a the uh, privacy health checkup where we expose the full universe and look at every access to determine how many violations are occurring and what kind of processes and procedures are effective at, at mitigating them or preventing them. And, and without a doubt, the organizations that have really strong and robust partnerships between privacy and security always perform the best on those types of, of audit reports. Uh, I, we work with a lot of customers where those roles are combined um, and, and really talented individuals are able to do both, but to have a privacy hat and have a security hat, I do think uh, are, are two sides of the same coin where you have to look at things from a different perspective. And having two roles really challenge each other uh, and, and complement each other at the same time, I, I think is super effective. Can be done combined, but I, I think is much better separate.
1: Yeah, so you know, the, the way that I sort of describe it is security is the sort of technology wrap around privacy. Um and when I've sort of looked at these, frankly, when when you sort of look at them and you do that Venn diagram, there there is an overlap between in that sort of security and privacy space. But um, I do as a security person, as, as you know, and I, I get involved in a lot more other security type stuff. But then I, I don't get involved in paper and and some some of those HR follow ups and the policies and the sanctions and, um, and, and and frankly some of the other compliance type work that, that privacy officers tend to sort of get get attached to as well. So um, I, I think that can make it work i think as the organization gets bigger and bigger and bigger um it it does require focus and requires two people to um to really sort of look at yes because they're both very 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 large right i mean you're you're literally asking one person to keep up with all of the laws and regulations around security and the growing number of laws and regulations around privacy. Um, I think if you made that, that one person, then, then you have to abstract a lot of those other functions. So all the technical work from the security person and maybe have like a, a TISO, a technical information security officer. Um, and then, you know, abstract some of that work out of, um, out of your privacy office as well. So it either can work, but um but it's a team sport.
0: <laughs> All right. We're gonna go with a lightning round. Fifteen seconds, final thought, piece of advice for your colleagues out there at other health systems grappling with this issue. Anahi? i'll go back to education mm-hmm. uh educate educate
2: educate um all the technology in the world isn't going to prevent um just humans being humans
1: glenn yeah because of now he's still educator i'm going to say if you haven't deployed multi-factor authentication just do it
0: okay at the <laughs> mfa all right nick final word
3: uh, uh, two good, two good ones. I'll just add on that, that building down great processes and workflows, uh, in advance, um, are, are, are really critical to making sure you have a successful program.
0: Excellent. All right. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register. For upcoming webinars, with that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Anahi Santiago, Glenn Stanton, and Nick Culbertson. And I want to thank Pro Tennis for sponsoring, making the event possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for continuing to join our events. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. All.